Well, good morning, friends. It's uh, hard for me to stand here and believe that it's been actually this past week, 19, sorry, 18 years since the attacks of September 11th, 2001. 18 years ago, it's hard to believe. I remember, remember exactly where I was 18 years ago. In fact, I was in a beautiful and glorious city called Ambridge, Pennsylvania. That's not true, actually. <laughs> I was in Ambridge, but it's not beautiful and glorious. But I was there for seminary. It was a cool day. We were in chapel at 8.30 in the morning every day for morning prayer. And then we left chapel at 8.30 and went to class at 9 o'clock. And en route to class, somebody had heard that a, a plane, which we thought was a, a private small plane, had hit the first tower. Thought, okay, and then we got to class, we got our books opened, and then at 9.06, right after the lecture started, I can't remember what the lecture was about, but I do remember where I was, uh, somebody said, oh my goodness, a plane is at the second tower, and at that moment, man, and I know you were, you had the same experience, at that moment, everything, everything changed. And, you know, and I'm not, I'm not naive, um, and I'm certainly not um, unwise when it comes to these things, I grew up during the tail end of the Cold War, right? I remember Ronald Reagan in the mid-80s, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I remember in, in high school being concerned that someone was gonna push the button, remember? But this is different, because this was, in my mind, the events of September the 11th, 2001, were different because it was, in a word, evil. Even our modern culture today, even now, 18 years later, we still wrestle with an explanation. Why? What in God's name would motivate 18, 19, excuse me, otherwise normal-looking guys to fly airplanes into buildings and kill thousands of innocent people? Why? Well, our culture has no real answer, but the Bible does. And we're going to talk about that today. A clear answer, friends about why people, and not just terrorists, by the way, but why people do evil things. So I'm going to look at three points today. The reality of evil, what causes it, the reality of evil, its cause, and then how does God fix the problem. So for three points. The reality of evil. Secondly, where does it come from? And finally, how does Jesus Christ solve the problem. So what drives a person to commit acts of evil? First thing we have to do here, very briefly, is to define our terms. I'll give you an example. It's pretty obvious you think about it. If, say, you're driving in a car, right? You're driving along, and you hit somebody, a pedestrian who crosses, crosses the street in a, in a jaywalking. Great video on YouTube, by the way, uh, a couple days ago that came across my YouTube, uh, my Facebook feed. There's a guy in New York City, and there's a jaywalker coming across the street. And of course, in New York City, you don't jaywalk. And the guy, the jaywalker is walking across, the guy in the car slams on the brakes, and he has his phone out, and he's videotaping this man crossing in front of him. And the jaywalker, <laughs> it's kind of funny, the jaywalker is walking across, and he's giving the evil eye to the driver of the car, right? You're going to stop, gonna stop for me, huh? And he goes up on the curb and bam, walks right into a telephone pole. If I believed in karma, 
But so anyway, the point being, if you're, say you're driving a car and you run over somebody and maybe you even kill them, right? So you cause suffering, you cause pain, you cause hurt, but it's not evil. But say you, you're driving your car and you hit the person, the very same person, and you kill them, but you did it on purpose. That is evil. So what's the difference? Evil, listen, has intent. Why am I telling you that? Well, because the psalmist tells us that. Let me show you this. Psalm 14, which we're going to look at. Open up your books to page 6. I'm not going to spend, go through it in detail until we get to the end, but you're going to need it. Psalm 14, verse 1. The psalmist says, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. Now, it's a loaded, loaded verse. The the verse 14 could be translated like this. In the Hebrew, you could say, the fool says in his heart, there is no God here. You could also say, the fool says in his heart, there is no God who sees. The fool says in his heart, there is no God who notices. There is no God, the fool says in his heart, there is no God who cares. And that word for fool there is a specific word in Hebrew. There's lots of words in Hebrew that get translated fool. This one is a specific one. It's the word Nabal. There's a guy in 2 Samuel named Nabal, by the way. Thanks, Mom. But it means the word Nabal is the word for fool. And a fool in this context is very specific, and I'm going to show you something which may surprise you. A fool is not somebody who's ignorant or uneducated or stupid or a knuckle-dragger. A fool is, in this context is not necessarily, I don't know, the contractor who did, never finishes the job installing the key fobs. Just saying. <laughs> Got that one. Biblically speaking, a fool, listen, this is really important. A fool is someone who knows something is wrong and does it anyway. A fool is someone who knows something is wrong and does it anyway. See, The idea of believing in God biblically is not intellectual. It is behavioral. The Bible knows nothing of people that don't believe in God. The Bible knows nothing about atheism as an intellectual idea because it doesn't exist. Both faith and lack of faith are in how you believe, or how you act, excuse me. So a foolish person is a person who knows something is wrong and does it anyway. Why? Because God doesn't see it. A fool says in his heart, I know it's wrong, I'm going to do it anyway, because God doesn't care, even though I know he does. Let me give you an example of a a 21st century fool. His name is Christopher Hitchens. Shouldn't say that about a dead guy, but in the context of today, it's true. Hitchens was a a Church of England guy. He was a self-proclaimed atheist. He loathes people of faith. He loathes Christians. And yet, interestingly, Hitchens has complete faith that God does not exist. Now, let me just, I taught science and logic and scientific research methodology in graduate school, and you, you can't prove a negative. I have never, I have never seen a rhinoceros. It doesn't mean they don't exist. I've never seen a leprechaun. It doesn't mean they don't exist. You cannot prove a negative, friends. And where Hitchens and all self-proclaimed atheists are exposed as frauds is the problem of evil, you see. 
Because look, if there is no God, if there is no God, then there is, listen, there is no objective right and wrong. Christopher Hitchens' brother, a guy by the name of Peter, Peter Hitchens is a full-on Anglican believer, and uh, he wrote a book called The Rage Against God about his brother. I can only imagine what Thanksgiving dinner is like around that Thanksgiving table. But Christopher Hitchens' brother, Peter, who is a believer, wrote a book called The Rage Against God, and Peter writes about his brother, my brother is astonishingly unable to grasp that these assumptions are problems for his argument. In other words, Christopher Hitchens argues that religion is evil for corrupting rational minds. But to claim evil presupposes the existence of God in the first place. And this is nothing new. And if maybe if Hitchens read a little more 19th century German philosophy, he would have known better because a guy named Friedrich Nietzsche, who I, I talk about frequently, I could not be more opposed to Friedrich Nietzsche, but I admire Nietzsche, 19th century atheist that he was. I admire, I admire him because he had the courage of his convictions and he was willing to take his, his beliefs to the logical conclusion. Friedrich Nietzsche was the guy who famously said, God is dead. Right? Which reminds me of a story. A buddy of mine gave me a bumper sticker, which I don't have on my car, but I will someday. And it's a bumper sticker that says, God is dead, Nietzsche. And then right below it, it says, Nietzsche is dead, God. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> but Nietzsche's, Nietzsche, Frederick Nietzsche's point, and he's right, is that without God, there is no such thing as good and evil. People claim that God is dead, like Christopher Hitchens, or even Nietzsche. But nobody actually lives that way. Nobody actually lives that way. I mean, I'll give you an example. Say somebody broke into Frederick Nietzsche's home and stole his 60-inch 5K high-definition TV, right? Just when he wanted to watch the Eagles game, some guy knocks on the door, pushes Nietzsche down, knocks him out cold, and takes his TV. Is Frederick Nietzsche going to wake up from that and go, well, you know, he had the right, he had the ability to take me down, so he did. I guess it's okay. Oh, Nietzsche's going to say that's wrong. My point being, my point being, friends, that no person believes that God does not exist, and no person does not believe in evil. Why? Because evil is real. When we see suffering, when we see evil, when we see 9-11, when we see the brokenness of our own families and our own lives and our own hearts, friends, that is not an argument against the existence of God. Ah, on the contrary, it is actually an argument for the existence of God. See, our collective belief in good and evil is actually proof, according to Scripture, that a standard of goodness and evil exists outside of our personal opinion. And I'd submit to you this, that the standard of good and evil exists in the mind of God himself. And since you and I are made in his image, we know it when we see it. So my point is, the first thing, it's a simple point, but it bears a little bit of uh, exegetical apologetics to get the point across, is that evil is real. Biblically speaking, evil is a real thing. It is, it is causing suffering with intent. My second point then is then, well, what causes it? Where does, this, where does this come from? You know, for many people, for lots of Western people, evil is a difficult concept to accept. The reason is those 9-11 attacks, if you read commentators, even today, everybody wants to come up with a reason, right? Radical Islam, or better education, 
or young idealistic youth with no job opportunities. Whatever it is, man. All sorts of explanations, and the reason we do it is because we are terrified that this evil thing might actually be real. Because then we've got to come up with a, a, an answer to its source. Well, what does the Bible say? Jesus warns us repeatedly that not only evil is real, but that it's personal. 35 times in the New Testament, Jesus mentions this personal embodiment of evil. Hasatanas is the Greek. Satan, we say. Hasatanas is not a proper name. It's actually a descriptor. Hasatanas is the prosecuting attorney in a court of law. So if you're on the stand, the prosecutor is your adversary, Satanas. And what Jesus said is that this adversary, your adversary and mine, is active and personal. First Peter elaborates on this point. I'm going to read it to you. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Peter says this. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. Now, a lot of people hear that, and they kind of want to roll their eyes, right? Come on, Father, really? You want me to believe in, and <laughs> we have this image of an overweight, middle-aged man in a red leotard, right? At least I do. That's going to stick with me for a while. <laughs> but you got you got this image of an overweight, middle-aged man in a red leotard with a pitchfork and horns on his head, right? But that's not actually what this is about, you see. That's not true. Let me, and I'll prove it. I will prove to you that you actually believe it, whether you're willing to admit it or not. You ready? Here it goes. Have you ever said or done something that you knew was wrong, and yet you did it anyway? Have you ever said or done something which you knew was wrong, and you did it anyway? Friends, in some sense, the fool in verse 1 is you and me. We are all, in one sense, biblical fools, Nabal. We know something is wrong. We do it anyway. We say to ourselves, God doesn't care. He won't see it. He'll cut me some slack. But here's how you know Satan is real. Because afterwards, you'll say to yourself, either when you get caught or there's a consequence that you reap, you will say, how could I do such a thing? You ever done that? You want to know why? According to the Bible, according to Jesus. Because your adversary knows your weakness. Because your adversary is personal. Because your adversary has a will and is clever and is relentless. He preys on the sentiment of ordinary folks. Again, look at the photos of those 19 men, young men, who drove the airplanes into those buildings. The one thing which strikes about them is that they all had fangs, right? And drooling. No, the, the weird thing about it is that they're all just so, so normal. But yet the adversary convinced those men to drive airplanes into buildings and kill thousands of innocent civilians, even though they knew what they were doing was wrong. Jesus warns us repeatedly over this, that evil is real, but it's not just a concept, it's personal. 
And you're in, you and your own lives know. Do you ever notice that you get yourselves into situations and things just continue to unfold and unfold and unfold? And you think, man, what is going on here? What's happening to me? What is going on in my life? Do you think that's an accident or is it planned? Is it deliberate? Is it intentional? Friends, the evil is real and it's personal. So if evil is real and personal, then, all right, Rodriguez, then what's the solution? Well, pull out your book. I'm going to show you something. Page 6 of your booklet there, Psalm 14. My final point then, if evil is real and personal, then I want to look at the goodness of God. I hope now you see something important, that the fool in Psalm 1, I'm sorry, in Psalm 14, verse 1, that fool is me. And that fool is you. Why? Because I do things all the time that I know are wrong and I do them anyway. Like somehow God's not going to see it. And if you look down to verse, verse 1 to the next line, it says all are corrupt and commit abominable acts. There is just a few who do no. Oh, no, it doesn't say. There is none who does any good. My point, friends, is that we are all in this stew together. We are all the fools in verse 1, you see. You can call it sin. You can call it brokenness. The point is, if you're honest, and it's obvious, is that we all blow it. The psalmist points it out clearly. There is none who does good. So where's the fix? Where's the joy? Where's the gospel? I'm going to show you. This is cool. Verse 7. If you read, if you read the, interme- the intervening verses, we get to verse 7, and we see God's solution. Oh, that Israel's deliverance would come out of Zion. That O there in the front is is an emphatic. And the psalmist saying, oh man, that Israel's deliverance, our, our freedom would come out of Zion. I can't wait for God's deliverance to come out of Zion. What does that mean? Well, Zion is a place. Zion is a word for the city of Jerusalem. And what we see is the psalmist prophesying that he is craving God's deliverance from the city of Jerusalem. Fast forward 2,500 years and we see it. We see this deliverance that comes out of Jerusalem in the person of Jesus Christ on a hill outside of Jerusalem. A hill on which Christ was crucified to pay for the sins of fools like me and like you. And to literally, as the psalmist says, deliver us and restore us to God the Father. Friends, don't you see that we are all the fools in Psalm 1? 9-11 was indeed a day of great evil, but it is also an opportunity for you to see the bigger picture. That evil is real, it's personal, but Christ has a solution. Because 9-11 reminds us that we are, in fact, in a spiritual battle, a spiritual war against evil. And yet, even though we are fools, even though we know things are wrong and we blow it, Jesus restores us to those who call upon him. He is, in fact, our deliverance, deliverance which comes out of Zion. Jesus is a God who reigns victorious. And when he returns, which we'll say in a moment in the creed, When Jesus returns, he will judge the living and the dead. He will serve the cause of justice. 
Evil will be punished. Evil men and women will be punished for their wickedness. But those who trust in Jesus to be their deliverance, friends, they, we, will be saved. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for your word, which just cuts to the heart of the matter, that diagnoses the reality of evil in this world and in our own hearts. Lord, give us courage despite our adversary and the strength to resist him. And when we fall, to call upon Jesus, who does in fact deliver us. And that he will set the world to rights. In the powerful name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.